Well, good morning. We're going to continue to go through the book of, of Job this morning, and we're going to dig into Job and chapter 31. So that's where we're going to be. And if you had been reading through, I hope you have, uh, the book of Job along with the sermon series, just taking it in and reflecting upon what's happening, then for chapter after chapter, Job has been, you'll know this, has been suspected and accused of awful sins by his three closest friends. That's where we would have been just before this chapter today. Chapter after chapter of accusations, terrible things. They've told him he's, he's brought all this misery that he's in on himself. They've suggested he's not trusting God. They've proposed he's not confessing some hidden sin. They've accused him of committing specific injustices, in a sense, filling in the blanks. You know, I don't know what you've done, but maybe it was this. I bet it was this, Job. They've been unrelenting in their prosecution of Job. And I use the word prosecution intentionally. That is what they're doing. They're putting Job on trial. They're looking for a sentence of guilty. And yet we remember that this cannot be the case, that he cannot be guilty. At least he cannot be suffering because of his guilt. Because we remember back to chapter 1, verse 8, at the beginning of the book of Job, we remember this, God says this to Satan. There is none like Job on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears me and turns away from evil. That's what God says about Job. We we can't buy into the arguments of the prosecution. We know they're not true. Now I wonder, how would you reply in a similar situation if you're in Job's shoes and people are accusing you of doing something, some sin, some crime you didn't do? Uh, how would you react? How would you answer them? To whom would you appeal? Maybe that's the appropriate question. To whom would you appeal? In our legal system, a defendant can attempt to reverse an unjust judgment by appealing the ruling to a higher court. And if you move up the court system, it can be the case that the Supreme Court will even choose to hear your case. In a sense, that's what Job is doing here. In this chapter, chapter 31 of Job, this book that bears his name, he is appealing to the supreme justice, the supreme judge of the universe. He's appealing to God in this chapter. And he's asking that God would hear his case. So let's look at this final appeal from Job, Job chapter 31. It is a poem. I'm going to read all of Job chapter 31. It is a messy poem, a sort of confused poem. I'm going to come back and talk about that later on. But if you have trouble following it at different spots, just know it's, it's not necessarily you. It is, it is the poem. And I'm going to show you why later on again. But let's read this. Job chapter 31, hear the word of God as it's recorded there. Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin 
What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not God see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows for me be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon. And it would burn to the root all my increase. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant. When they brought a a complaint against me. What then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry. What shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him, my servant? And did not one fashion us in the womb? If I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the fatherless has not eaten of it, for from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. In other words, let let my power be taken from me. For I was in terror of calamity from God and I could not have faced his majesty. If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence. If I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much. If I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendor and my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand This also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hates me, or exulted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. If the men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been filled with Job's meat. But the sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart, because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me, so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors, oh, that I had one to hear me. 
Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I've eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for it. And we would be moving wrongly ahead unless we pray right now to ask God to come and teach us from this passage. Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we pray together that you would come now and open up your word for us. We want to depend upon your spirit who you've given all those who follow Jesus Christ. And we ask that the spirit would bring our minds understanding and bring our hearts a softness so that you might conform us into the image of Jesus Christ so that you might work to sanctify us, your people. Make us holy like Jesus We cannot do this ourselves. We need you to do this in us. And so we pray that you would be our teacher today through this sermon. It is in Christ's name that we offer up these prayers. Amen. Well, a couple of questions are going to help us to to look at this passage to try to understand it. Uh, This poem, this messy poem. First, first question we're going to ask is what's going on in the poem? What's Job talking about here? We need to establish that. We need to understand that. And then the second question will play off of that. And it is this. What can we learn from what Job is saying? And what he's doing in this poem that we find in chapter 31. So what's going on in the poem? What we, can we learn from what's going on in the poem. And we're going to ask each of these in turn. Let's start with what's going on in this poem. You probably noticed, if you were paying close attention, that Job primarily speaks using contingent statements in this poem. Uh, Contingent statements being if-then statements. So like, if I loan you a book, then you should return it to me. If any of you have one of my books, you need to return it, by the way. That's just a side note. But that's an if-then statement. We use them all the time in daily life, don't we? I use them all the time in my, parent, my parenting to no effect at all, right? I say things like, if you turn on all the lights in the house, kids, you should probably then turn them off again. And yet my house is regularly lit up like a Christmas tree. You just drive by it on Hanover Street. There you'll see it. I'm constantly following them around, turning off lights. But Job uses them in his poetic appeal to plead, for the very last time, his case. Job essentially says, if I had committed this or that sin, 
If I had done some terrible thing, then all of this suffering that has come upon me would be justified. It would be understandable. But I haven't. So I don't know how to make sense of the suffering that I am in. That's his argument here for the last time to his three miserable friends. And that is the basis of his appeal right now to God. Let's look at some examples of how he uses contingent statements so that you'll understand uh, what he's doing and see it more clearly. And, and essentially, he, he moves with these statements in two different directions. He, he moves horizontally. And what I mean by that is he moves in terms of his relationships with other people. He says, I'll look at the possible ways I could have sinned against other people. And then he moves vertically. I'll look at the ways that I could have sinned directly against my maker. So that's how he moves in two directions. Horizontal guilt is the first thing that he considers here. Job says he's treated other human beings honorably. He's lived well socially. In other words, Job knows that he has a responsibility to other people, to treat other people before God in in a true just way, a true just fashion. It's sort of uh, the beginning of the golden rule here, right? Do to others what you'd want them to do to you. And yet he lives before the golden rule was even coined. But that's his conviction. He is supposed to treat other people as he would want to be treated in order to honor God. And it's interesting to consider the horizontal sins Job examines, the the sins he suggests he could have committed but didn't. First, there are sexual sins, lust and adultery. Verse 1 through 4. Verse 9 through 12. Then there's sins of deception. Lying or concealing the truth. Verse 5 and 6. Verse 33 and 34. Then there's sins of greed. Coveting what others have. Verse 7 and 8. And then there's sins of a social nature. Abusing a servant. Not caring for the poor. Perverting justice. Verses 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 31, 32, 38, 39, 40. I'm not off track. I want you to hear every one of those verses. Let's think about this for a second. When we look at at Job, right, making this final appeal, what we see is that for 16 verses, he deals with social injustices he could have committed. And with just 13, he talks about all the other sins. And I wonder if that shouldn't instruct us. I wonder if that doesn't mean something. And we should take note and we should think differently as followers of Jesus Christ. Let me just say this and then we'll move on. I think Job and the rest of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation reflects that God cares deeply for the least of these. The widow, 
the fatherless, the refugee. God cares deeply for the vulnerable, the marginalized. And so Job recognizes that and spends a lot of his time considering what he could have done in those areas, areas where he has privilege and could abuse his privilege. Areas where he has power and he could abuse his power for his own personal gain. And he says, I haven't done this. And God, God has a heart for people who are in vulnerable positions. And here's the rub. Here's the thing that I think we have to consider as followers of Jesus Christ. We are like Job, many of us. We have power and we have privilege. How are we using our power and our privilege to reflect God's love for those who have been marginalized? Those who are powerless. Those who need someone to stand up for them. If I were going to put it in an if-then format like Job's if-then contingent format, it might go something like this. If God calls you to such a ministry, and let me just tell you unequivocally, he does. This is supposed to be characteristic of his followers, the people who, who love him. If he calls you to this kind of ministry, then how will you answer him on that day, that judgment day, when he calls you for an accounting? How are you standing in the gap Defending those who have no one else to defend them. How are you using your power and your privilege to care for those who have no power and no privilege? Let me make it practical, real practical. We partner with organizations that do this. You have an opportunity to partner with organizations that do this. Center for Champions is a discipleship, a mentoring ministry that works in the city of Harrisburg. Jeff Bruce who helps to lead that organization, would love nothing more than have you volunteer to tutor a a child in Harrisburg or to mentor and disciple a child in Harrisburg so that you might reflect God's care for that child. There's Bethesda Mission that has operated in this city for a long time and does great work. They care for people who are homeless. They care for people who have nothing to eat that don't have enough clothing to wear. They care in tangible ways. They reflect in tangible ways. God's heart for these people who have been marginalized. You can help reflect God's heart by working with them. And then I think about Neil and Tona Hess, who are members of this congregation, and they work with those who've been displaced from their homeland and are here in the United States. These people usually don't speak the language well, they don't understand the culture well, they are vulnerable. And you can partner with Neil and Tona to care for them, reflect God's heart for them. Real practical ways. You don't have to guess. We should be a people who follow Jesus Christ in caring for those who are on the fringe of society. That's, that's a calling for every Christian. So how are, you, how are you meeting that call? Well, along with horizontal guilt, uh, relationships in society, Job also considers his vertical guilt. How may he have 
sinned against God. Job says he's reserved his worship and his praise for his creator. He considers how he could have sinned against God and thus would deserve to suffer as he has. But Job maintains he hasn't done that. That's not why he's suffering. He hasn't trusted in his wealth more than he's trusted in God. Verse 24 and 25. He hasn't worshipped idols, the sun, the moon, the stars. Verse 26, 27, and 28. He hasn't done this. Friends, the poetic point of chapter 31 is that Job maintains his innocence. He maintains his innocence before his three miserable comforters who are prosecuting him for sins he didn't commit, and he maintains his innocence before God and makes his appeal to God. Now, it's important that we reiterate at this point, because we've said it before. This is not Job saying, I'm sinless. This is Job claiming, as even God states that he is, that when he has sinned, if he has been in error, if he has done something wrong, he has tried to the best of his ability to handle it in a way that honors God. That's what Job is claiming. He's saying that I haven't done anything that would bring all of this suffering down upon me. I've always tried to handle my sin in right ways, the kinds of ways that that bring God glory. That's what he's saying. And God, again, testifies to this truth, doesn't he? Let's look at it one more time. Chapter 1, verse 8, God says, There is none like Job on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears me and turns away from evil. He doesn't run into evil. He, he recognizes, oh, I'm doing something wrong, and he turns. That's Job. We know that to be true. We have to remember that. You know, I bet Job's theology was probably a lot like his three friends' theology Before he suffered. I'll bet before Job had all these terrible things happen to him. That he thought about other people. The way that his three friends are thinking about him right now. That if if terrible things happen to you. Then you probably did something to deserve it. There's some sin that you've committed. That's probably how Job thought before all this. But now... That worldview is on its head. Job's world is turned upside down. He doesn't have answers. And that's why he's appealing right here to God. He needs an answer. The answers he used to have, they don't satisfy. They're not sufficient. He's uh, struggling to make sense of it all. And I said I was going to come back to the poem. Let me come back to the poem right now. It's a broken poem. It doesn't make sense sometimes. It seems strange. So much so that, did you know, scholars, some scholars, have attempted to make better sense of it. Oh, it, it couldn't have been written this way. This is poor poetry. Certainly God wouldn't want poor poetry in his, his holy word. And so they've gone back and tried to figure out how they can make the if-then statements work out better. But they miss the point when they try to do that because, friends, the poem is symbolic of the man. The poem is broken. The poem is confused because Job is broken and Job is confused. 
the poem reflects the man. It's the kinds of things that people say when they're suffering, when they've gone through what Job has gone through. These are the kinds of things that people go through, the confusion, the brokenness, the questions. Job's exhausted. So in the end, he has nothing left to do except appeal to God. And did you notice, he signs his name to the poem and calls upon God to judge. In resignation, Job cries out, verse 35, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. That's his appeal. Uh, With this last appeal to the supreme judge, the supreme justice, God, The back and forth between Job and his miserable friends, it's over. It stops. They will not accuse him again, and Job will not defend himself anymore. The back and forth stops. All they can do at this point is wait. They're waiting on the Lord at the end of chapter 31. They're waiting to see if God will take up Job's case. Is he going to give an answer? I can just see those three miserable comforters shaking their heads, judging Job for the audacity of thinking that God would hear his case. And I can see Job looking expectantly for his vindication. If you've never read Job before, if this is your first time through the book and you haven't finished the book, spoiler alert right now. Spoiler alert. They're waiting on God here. He's going to show up. And when God shows up, both the miserable comforters and Job are in for a very unpleasant surprise. When a holy God appears on the scene, these miserable comforters they're going to recognize they weren't as right as they thought they were. And Job is going to recognize he's not as innocent as he thought he was. When we stand before holy God, this is our place as well. We're not as right as we thought we were. We're not as innocent as we thought we were. And this brings us to our second and final question. What can we learn from this poem? What can we learn from it? As we meditate upon this poem and the 30 chapters that have preceded it, we can learn at least three things. Two two things that I think are obvious. They're clear. And one thing that is subtle but incredibly important. So three lessons. Let's look at the, the clear lessons first. I think this is a clear lesson from Job 31. I think this is a clear lesson from the book of Job. I think this is a clear lesson from the Bible as a whole. Life in a fallen world is messy. It's messy. In just the third chapter of the Bible, our first father and our first mother, Adam and Eve, invited sin into creation. And from that time forward, Things have been messy. Wars, 
crimes, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, messy, messy, messy. They devastate countries. They devastate cities, these things. Christian and non-Christian alike agree that the world is not as it should be. That that should pique our attention. Christian and non-Christian alike. I've sat in rooms over the last 30 years with non-Christians and Christians together and we all say the same thing. This shouldn't be like this. We need to work for change. Everybody agrees. This world is messy and not like it should be. That's where we find ourselves in this text. Everyone's waiting on the Lord for an answer. Why is the world so messy? Why are things happening to Job? Their argument and their answers. they've, They've failed. No human being has been able to bring something to the table. So Job's caught in this mess. And we recognize that something has to change. The second clear lesson. Second obvious lesson. Again, this chapter, this book. The Bible, that's where this lesson's taught. Sinful people can't fix the mess. Job can't correct his situation. He has no answers. His wife can't correct his situation. Her best advice is to curse God and die. His three miserable comforters show up. They're supposed to have the wisdom of the world. And they only make things worse. Human beings can't fix Job's situation. They can't fix the mess of this world. All of these ineffective interactions take place. Job finally shuts the door on human answers and says, I am going to take it straight to God. He is the only one who can give me an answer at this point. He's solely trusting on God and looking to God for an answer. That is a good place to be. Let me just say that. That is the best place to be. That's where Job is. That's the second clear lesson. Now, this brings us to the more subtle lesson here that I think we do not want to miss. And we're going to close with this lesson. At this point in the text, everything is on hold, right? Everybody's waiting for God. The hardest thing to do is to teach literature to people who already are familiar with the literature because they don't feel the tensions. You're supposed to feel tension here when Job petitions God. You're supposed to be asking that suspenseful question, is God going to show up? Is God going to give an answer? If he doesn't, Job's in trouble. We all go home disappointed. There are no answers to be found. So we're all waiting with bated breath to see if God's going to show up and give Job his answer. You've got to recognize that that tension is there. Yet here's the subtle and essential lesson we, we can't miss. It's this. Hear this. When you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ... When you suffer, you know that God will hear the case and answer. And not only do you know, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that God's going to answer, you also know what his answer is going to be. He is going to say, in Jesus, you are innocent. You're vindicated. You know that. This is important. You've got to get this through your head. When you suffer, you are not in Job's place. 
Job's tension is not your tension. Everybody's sitting waiting for God. You don't have to sit in the midst of suffering and wait for God like Job does. We have a confidence and an assurance that he didn't have. And this is good news for us. This is the great news of the gospel in Jesus Christ. We know God has purposes for us in our suffering. Well, they may be mysterious in a lot of ways, but we know he has purposes. He has promised he has purposes. And not only do we know that he has purposes, we know that ultimately those purposes will be good. God wants to craft you and me into the image of Jesus Christ. God wants to work his goodness, his character into us. And he is able and even pleased to do so when we suffer. There are not any greater opportunities in our lives for sanctification than when we suffer. You cannot look more Christ-like than when you patiently wait on the Lord in suffering with faith. It's hard. It's so very, very hard. But we have an answer and we have a hope that Job simply did not have. Job lived about the time that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob lived. He lived before Moses was born. He lived before the coming of the law. He had no reason to believe that God was going to show up to give him an answer. That is not where you live. You live this side of the cross. You have the promises of God and yours is a great hope in Jesus Christ. A great hope. A confident hope that God is working even in the midst of suffering for your good. Some of you may know who Paul David Tripp is. He's a a Christian pastor. And in fact, we're doing right now, downstairs underneath us, they're doing a parenting class that he wrote the book. He wrote the book for this parenting class. We're doing it. It's great. But Paul Tripp went to the hospital on October the 19th, 2014. He went to the hospital thinking he was going to be out in 45 minutes with some medication and on his way. He didn't leave for 10 days. 10 days, multiple surgeries. He left, and these are his words. He left with the knowledge that he would, quote, never not be sick for the rest of his life. He went in thinking, I'm going to breeze out of there in 45 minutes. He left knowing that he was never going to be well and strong and capable as he was before again. This side of eternity. And he wrote a poem. In the midst of all of this upheaval in his life, all of this pain, all this suffering. And I thought, you know what? Job writes a poem in his position in redemptive history. And it looks a certain way. We just read it. But you know what? It would be good to finish with a poem from a different place in redemptive history. A place that reflects on the cross of Jesus Christ and how it changes our view of suffering. I'm going to read that poem and then we're going to close. Here's what. Paul Tripp writes, it's not going to be on the screens, just listen and think how if you're in Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, Job's tension is not your tension in suffering. Weak. I long to be strong, full of vitality, energy to spare, wide awake, brain in gear, muscles ready, motivation engaged, purposed, possessed, raring to go, unstoppable zeal, 
a competitor, a completer, the envy of others, no frailties, no worries, no regrets. But you have rendered me weak, unable to be what I once was ever again, not in this life, the old me, gone. I cannot live as I once did. I cannot do what I once did. I cannot press through what you have chosen for me. I cannot escape. I cannot break free. I cannot will for something better. Weakness is my lot. Suffering is my prison. You have changed, chained me to frailty. I cannot break free. But this prison is your work room. And I am your clay You are not a jailer. You are a potter. I have not been condemned. I am being molded. Your hands have been heavy. Your push on me is hard. When the soil is resistant, the molding is violent. My weakness is not about what I am enduring. My weakness is about what I am becoming. My travail does not preach your anger. My travail preaches your grace. The prison is your classroom. I am learning your presence. I am learning your promises. I am learning your power. I am learning your mercy. I am learning your gospel. I am learning, learning, learning. The danger for me was never weakness. The danger was, has always been my delusions of strength. You have shattered my delusion. And in shattering have proven my strength is and has always been you. If you are suffering right now, if you have lost a loved one, if you have been betrayed, if you have a terrible diagnosis, a terrible disease that has entered into your life, if you are there right now and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, just know your God loves you. He cares for you. He has not abandoned you. And he even right now is working on you for his glorious purposes. And one day, he himself will wipe tears from your eyes. If you aren't suffering right now, just know that not suffering is not the way of this world. You will So prepare yourself right now by gazing at Christ Jesus, our Lord, who suffered for us, faithfully following God in the midst of it. Set your sights on him, cling to him, forget your strength and your ability, and depend upon Christ. Trust in him. And when those sufferings do come, and they will, You will be ready. You will be ready for what God has. And God will, in the end, wipe your tears from your eyes. Your tension, my tension, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, simply isn't Job's tension. Remember that. Remember that. Let me close this in prayer, and then we get a chance to celebrate communion together, which is so, so very appropriate today. Will you bow your heads with me?
Heavenly Father, may the words of this sermon speak truth into our lives. Lord, what isn't of you, cut it back. Send it away from us. But what is of you, plant it in us and grow us and develop us and craft us like a potter with clay into the image of Christ Jesus so that we might cling to you always as our great strength. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.